Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Morgan Phillips and I'm a human. And I'm Isabella Vallette and I'm also a human. But I was raised by fairies. And now I'm taking my human friend Morgan in to meet all of the mythological creatures that I know. Every Sunday we meet a new mythological creature and interview them about their life in a modern day context. Such as... The Night King from Game of Thrones. Funicula, the friendly vampire brother of Dracula. We've met the Loch Ness Monster. Santa. The Volpertinga. The Devil. And a Mermaid. And many more. We release all our interviews as a podcast called Off of the Fairies, where we interview a new mythological creature every week living in a modern day world. Come join us. Uh, that's not kind of productions podcast. Righteous as always, my Kyotis. Welcome back to Delicious Word Sandwich. And here I am, punctual as always. Perhaps not according to thy ears or thy brains, but to thy hearts. For your old pal, Almighty, that's me, comes wherever and whenever you need. And boy, do you need it. Look at you. Yeesh. But not to fret you, beautiful pelican. Tis better than being a pelicant. And after all, we're all always starving for a delicious word sandwich. Because they're so good. Not because I seem determined to miss deadlines and starve ye. So now strap yourselves into your wheelie bin. We're going for a ride. In our journey to this point, I've had to work and rework how to best deliver a delicious word sandwich. There's nothing else quite like it after all. And I've realized that our journey is a sandwich itself. Filled with literary analysis, I hope hilarity, history, and I hope something with the tang of wisdom. Squashed between zany story time. So here we go. Once upon an old Maddie. Where did we last leave our intrepid, inept hero? Ah yes, there I was, undeservedly betrayed by the original castaway Robinson Crusoe, what a barstool, and left as governor of an island nobody wanted. Fun fact, the island that Daniel Defoe based his 1719 adventure setting on, inspired by a true story of a castaway, is now named Robinson Crusoe Island. Which is absolute nonsense, because I, old Maddie, clearly was a better governor of the island. One final thing I will say about Robinson Crusoe before relaying my adventures hence, is that I wish to add a caveat to my prior analysis. In the former episode, I declared that I do not consider the story a colonialist fairy tale, as so crudely dubbed by The Guardian. While I stand by everything in essence I said to construct a delicious word sandwich of seemingly yesteryear, I wish to correct myself in that it is indeed a colonialist story, in the literal sense, in that it is a story about Western ingenuity to colonize slash conquer nature with the veneer of civilization. However, unlike, say, in King Solomon's Minds or the works of Rudyard Kipling, this theme of colonialism, context considering, was not done in a truly toxic way, I consider. Yes, the surface-level interactions with Friday are problematic, and I still have a problem with Friday in the bear sequence, but as I proffered before, tis still all good, especially for the time. Nevertheless, what in the blazes was that sequence with the bear? Oh, that poor, poor bear. 
It was apparently meant to lighten the mood after the ordeals of the book, yet was easily the most disturbing sequence in the whole novel. Peas and rice. Speaking of bears, while my ex-best friend Rob sailed away after leaving me here to die for absolutely no reason, it was just a little mutiny on my part. A damn grudge smudge Jim Pawsby, the gun-toting unicycling bear, decided to stay under my benevolent rule. Of course, he immediately sparked a coup. On Robin Crusoe Island, you know what? On old Matty Island, a lot of jazz went down, and some of it was spooky scary jazz, like if Count Basie was a vampire kind of jazz. There were highs, like the time when the wicked Solomon tribes of Gagool decided that I wasn't worth it and returned to the secret sanctuary, or the time when we got some fun new residents with some interesting ideas on society and shells. And there were lows, like the time when the Gugu warriors returned but with better weaponry, and the new residents threw their good civilization ideas out of the goddamn window. That's right, they built a window, a whole wall with a window, just to throw a conch out of it. But more baffling than that, they were very mean to old Maddie. Very mean indeed. Some might even say ill-mannered. There were manhunts through forests, murders, thievery, slanders and slights, alliances were forged, more were destroyed, friends were killed, and enemies left to fester only to prosper, political assassination, character assassination. Needless to say, my little Bora Bora adventure became a horror horror show. Alas, it seemed that being a castaway wasn't going to be as fun as Nim's Island made it seem. Remember Nim's Island? Literally the only laser disc on the whole island. It was a dark day when the Gagool tribe brought out the diamond laser disc player. There we were, gathered around it like a united community around a campfire. That was the moment, I believe, when our new residents went insane. Jim Pawsby transcended to Demon Bear, and the Gagool tribe lost all investment in the fate of us and humanity in general. After the Great Battle of Nim's Island Day, culminating in the new dominant tribe decapitating a boar with the laser disc and proceeding to taunt me with it endlessly as if it were Lucifer's paddle pop, old Maddie's Island became a fresh kind of hell, and I did not care for the dessert menu. They could have at least taken care of Jim Pawsby for me, whose gun jammed one too many times and in frustration unicycled to the top of the central mountain from which I erupted. Part of me is going to miss that bear. A bigger part of me is grateful he missed me. Oh, so many times. Chump. Anyway, it's all very painful to talk about, especially how that ended, so I'm going to have to leave that tale and all the others from that tropical Tartarus for another day. I will note, my Kyotis, I maintain that I was a wonderful governor. The government were the damn problem. Soon enough, I found myself traveling with a fellow with no first name, so I just called him Major. I thought he was with the Navy at first when he came to shore, but turns out he travels by any means he can in search of good chefs and laborers for his Air Force base. I always admire anyone who lives, let alone achieves, comfortably beyond their means. He admired my gumption and my strange ability to turn literature into sandwiches. He reluctantly agreed that that counted as being a chef and took me on board. Jump! Back on old Maddie's island, me and Major really headed off, both agreeing that I was the only one worth saving. He asked about the bear, impressed by his stupid unicycling, but then I said how Jim Pawsby favours the M16, and the Major immediately understood my hatred. He never could understand why I had bear paws and Pawsby had my hands, but the Major can mind his own damn business. I'll be honest here, Kiotis, I've forgotten why Jim Pawsby is so mad at me. "'Twas a bit of a scuffle, I remember. We changed hands, ha-ha, and have been Tom and Jerrying ever since. Clearly he's insane, and I can't abide madness. Besides, I'm sure I'm in the right. Da-da-da-da, stupid old bear. Parody Lord. Quit distracting me, Kiotis. 
I'm trying to tell you a story, jeez Louise. My dreams of fine wine in Italy seemed finally to come to the waking, for the major told me our destination, Pianosa, a small island big enough for only a teeny tiny community of Italian villages. This was wonderful news, for having spent so much time on old Maddie Island, I knew there was nothing to do on those islands but make fine wine and drink. Hence my late deliveries, Chiotis. Other than the fact that my audio comes from a yuzb in a bottle, the daily battles, debates, and horror of the island, and, you know, I'm lazy. Looks like old Maddie was gonna get all wine. Now another fun fact, Chiotis. I'm full of them, and not full of anything else. Pianosa is a real island, small and lovely, like I said. But what I saw was utterly ridiculous. An airbase. A military airbase. US, no less. Literally too big for the island. Forsooth, the blackguards had stretched the island out. The lovely white beaches were pixelated with the strain. The water was dry around one's ankles when we stepped from the boat. And the tents, planes and soldiers on the edges of the malformed island sometimes didn't quite touch the ground. I told the Major that Pianosa was too small to accommodate the shenanigans and physical proportions of a US military airbase. He told me that if it was too small, it wouldn't be here. I guess. Anyway, I didn't let it bother me too much. After all, old Maddie was free from the catacombs and the island prison above it, free from my surprisingly vast rose gallery, especially the bear, and now witnessing all the majesty of fresh wine before my eyes. But then I was drafted, and wine was only for officers, and you can only become an officer of Pianosa by having an expert opinion on the freshest local wines. Bah! It seems I will have to abide some madness. Enlisted, off to Bombardier Pilot Academy I went. Before I knew it, I was fighting something called World War I.I. What is that? Some sort of sailor's scuffle? My uniform chafed. I was kicked awake in the darkest hours of night every single morning to stand outside at attention in the mud with no foot gloves to speak of. World War I.I.? More like World War Bye-Bye, me thinks. And I began plotting my desertion. But I figured I may as well learn to fly a plane first all the more useful for my coming escape. And learning to drop bombs might be useful for rather large spiders in my bedroom and stand-up comedy. Here's a joke for ya. What do you call someone who quits working at an ice cream shop? A deserter. Ha ha ha, thigh slap. But I get ahead of myself. After being sold out by my ex-ex-best friend, the Major, I found myself on a plane to the academy with one sodden copy of the New Yorker hidden in my left eye socket. Between trying to jump out of the plane to freedom, with or without a parachute, and arguing with the pilot about barrel rolls, somehow I managed to read a short story. Here we go, my kiotis. Welcome back to Delicious Word Sandwich. This episode's New Yorker short story is The Match by Colson Whitehead. Colson Whitehead is one of my favourite writers best known for his Pulitzer Prize winner novel, The Underground Railroad. In this short story, The Match, published in The New Yorker, April 1st, 2019, we have yet another masterwork about humanity and its cruelties. Indeed, it is no April Fool's joke, my kiotis. If you want to hear the story from the author directly, The New Yorker has such a recording, about 33 minutes long, available right away on the same page as the short story itself. How convenient. So you have old Maddie's permission to scurry away and listen to or read that jazz. Then come back. Because between undeservedly being betrayed by two best friends in a row, I have had enough betrayal for today. Thank you very much. Link is in the show notes. That link is https colon slash slash www.newyorker.com 
slash magazine slash 2019 slash 04 slash 01 slash the hyphen match. I bet that was helpful. Now, if you're just returning from the short story or you wanted to hear old Maddie spin the tale for yourself, you lazy lovely, I hope you understand or will understand not just how powerful this is as a social piece, but as an emotional one that strikes the deepest human chord. I and I choked up on a surge of emotion. I know that sounds like vomiting, but that's what happens when your heart wants to break free from this fleshy prison and scream at humanity's cruel, callous face. Embrace the emotional vomit. You can quote me on that. I chose the match for this episode because, like a certain novel to come, it expertly utilizes contradictory sentence structures to powerfully paint a broader world beyond that sentence. The sudden contradictions are used so well, like in our novel this day, to convey a message that neither statement separated could make with as much impact. Statements such as the opening line, The boys rooted for Griff, even though he was a miserable bully. A later line describing one of the novel's protagonists, Turner, from Elwood's perspective. Over time... Elwood saw that he was both always at home wherever he found himself, and also seemed like he shouldn't be there, inside and above at the same time, apart and apart. And finally, Turner was certain that Griff was going to win, even though he knew that he wasn't. Like in, I'll finally say it, Catch-22, this unique and daring sentence structure does wonders to paint nuanced characters, odd and intriguing circumstances, and finally overwhelming themes ultimately culminating into a picture of relatable humans in a world that seems so damn unfair. Out to get them, indeed. Whereas in Catch-22 this effect is used for more absurdly dramatic effect to satire the nature of war, it is heart-wrenchingly dramatic and real in The Match, because it conveys so vividly the cruel nature of what life was like for a POC in those relentlessly unjust times. On a lighter note, if you're wondering... Why am I so reluctant to say the novel of the episode at this stage when it's in the damn title? Well, I'll tell you. A little run-up to the main of the delicious word sandwich is quite a long walk for a short drink of the best damn water in town, so I find it awkward to bring it up before it is before us. But then again, Thorin's company talk of Erebor all the time even before they set out in The Hobbit, so perhaps I shall look in yonder distance henceforth to see the misty mountains to which we journey together, Kyrtis. So, surprise, we're doing Catch-22 by Joseph Heller, but not before we journey through the match to prove our mettle for the novel. Speaking of novels, one final thing I'll mention about the match before bounding thee in the yarn, oddly threatening there, is that this is an excerpt from the 2014 novel The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead, though one which stands firmly on its own. This story, and that novel, both are set in the sadistic, corrupt, and relentlessly vicious reform school called the Nickel Academy in Florida. While I usually ain't too fond of stories recycled from novels, this is a story that I think not only serves powerfully as a short story, but deserves to be told in every single way it can. Let the cruelty not be in vain, Kyotis. Listen, take it in, and learn so that humanity can do better. It ain't easy to spin this cheerfully. Y'all can deal. Unto the story! Tis Nickel Academy! A reform school taken over by a Ku Klux Klan member named Trevor Nickel. So off to a telling start. And it is time for the annual boxing championship. I quote, A bout between the best black fighter and whatever chump the white guys put up. The championship was the boy's sole acquaintance with justice at Nickel. Oh, the more telling. Griff is a big bully, all year targeting the lonely, meek, and small. A hulking figure, he was a blunt, direct, and powerful instrument of violence, 
tempered by a hard life where not a soul cared for him. While it's hard to like a bully, it's hard to dislike Griff, I found. In classes, especially mathematics, he struggled and took this frustration and terrible proportions out on others, but he showed great promise in boxing, and was the irrefutable champion for the black community at Nickel, which had a few nifty flow-on effects in that, once chosen for the fight, he stopped bullying the other kids and he, in turn, was given endless respect. To him and his supporters, he embodied their hope, anger and strength to stand against an unjust world. I soon liked Griff, because he showed great dignity in his role as the champion of a group. Elwood and Turner are two friends at Nickel, and the protagonist of Coulson's ultimate novel. In this short story, however, they are more observers and eyes for the readers, rather than separate to the core narrative, which is Griff's story. Elwood and Turner, the former a cynic and the latter growing to be more and more cynical, met in the Academy Hospital. Quote, Turner had swallowed soap powder and made himself sick to get out of an assignment, and Eldwood was recovering from his first White House beating. Indulge my reflection, Kyoptis. Like Yossarian in Catch-22, as you shall see, it seems absolutely essential to have a crafty, cynical protagonist in these stories, for where a large ensemble of supporting characters go on to represent the many facets of the themes of the unfair worlds these characters find themselves, we require cynical outsiders to stand against, may I say contradict, in order to give us a firm and even satirical perspective. They are a perfect audience surrogate the cynic, wondering aghast in an unjust world. They ground us in a world that does not make sense, a world where a place called the White House is a place of torture and injustice. That's not just biting satire, that's devouring satire. Also, both Yossarian and Turner consume soap to escape the arbitrary duties of the system out to get them. By Zeus, I'm good at picking thematically appropriate short stories. But that's enough flattery from you, dear Kiotis. Yes, you. Imagine my surprise, then, when Turner, while having a nap in the warehouse out of view, overhears a superintendent, Spencer, talking secretively to Griff. Unbeknownst to Griff, but all too known to Elwood, quote, Anytime a white man asked you about yourself, he was about to fuquad you over. Forgive my censorship there, Kiotis, but I need that not explicit tag, because I don't know who the hell out there is listening. You could be a bunch of puppies and I, the white noise, left on while your owners are away, and I ain't gonna poison your freaking baby ears. But I shall spice him up, apparently. And Fuquad over Griff was to be, for Turner heard Spencer tell the gruff boxer to take a dive in the third round, or else be taken out back. Even Griff, with stones in his fists and rocks in his head, was able to add up that much. When Turner gets away and tells Elwood, neither are surprised. I myself have no interest in the sport of boxing, though I respect the fortitude of the athletes, but I am, however, fascinated by its history. Like Eurovision, the big fights are often emblematic of the broader politics of the time, and this history is marred by corruption and the dark art of the fixed fight. Elwood is a sturdy character, a secret intellectual, who is in nickel because while a high school senior, he was attending night class at a local college and got picked up in a stolen car. He knows history, so he knows boxing in all its moral shades but he doesn't know what outback truly means, figuring it's just the ironical torment of the White House beatings yet again. Turner knows the worst of it much better, and shows him outback. On the way, they have a refreshingly light-hearted discussion about Elwood's current novel that he's reading. While this is still in keeping with the overarching themes and tone of the story, it is a well-deserved reprieve from the dour slate of the story. Tis about a posh British family of old trying to marry off their oldest daughter to keep their estate and title, but unfortunately, no one wants to marry her. When Turner asks if she's ugly, Elwood responds ruefully that she has a handsome face, 
summoning an earnest damn from Turner. Here we see how words can be so masterfully used in this realm of the tactful contradiction to portray unfairness and broken systems. For a handsome face back then, in a society where femininity alone was prized in a woman, meant that she was unjustly shunned. That being said, I'm also not about the whole selling folk into marriage for profit. Bah, the system, am I right? Back to the story, you loony anarchists. Show some decorum. Think of the puppies listening. They find out back. Two oaks on one side of the abandoned, dilapidated stables of long ago, said to be haunted, the oaks having an iron ring stabbed deep, immovable, into the bark. I cannot express this horror better than Turner. So, quote, this is out back. Once in a while, they take a black boy here and shackle him up to those. Arms spread out. Then they get a horse whip and tear him up. Unlike the integrated White House, where every boy out of line is punished, Outback is separate. Quote, They put you down as escaped and that's that, boy, says Turner. Sorry, you puppies out there, quivering in your world of tennis balls, cuddles, and plush. But you do need to know the truth of the cruelty a human nature is capable of. There are many stories of the great grace and kindness we are capable of, but they are meaningless without knowing the deep despair we can inflict. The choice is important. The big thing to remember about this story is that it's not a story of white people are evil. It's about how wickedness goes deeper than skin color, that Spencer can be cruel, as Griff can be cruel, and the parents who abandon their kids to places like Nickel can be cruel. People can be cruel. You hear that, little puppy? Tis time for the fight, ring-a-ding-ding. Before the title of match, there were a bunch of preliminary fights in which the two champs rose quickly through their prospective ranks to come to blows. Griff's adversary is a fellow named Big Chet, a boy from the swamps described quite as a creature. I'm imagining Cajun Bane. Before I get to this fight, however, I must emphasize how well the story alone, like Catch-22, so quickly and seamlessly introduces side characters who all have interesting stories to tell, like Wilson, one of Griff's lead-up fights, who stayed on his feet against the devastating blows of Griff to prove his worth to his father, who was too dead to change his mind. How's that for stubborn? Nevertheless, Wilson slept soundly and proud and beaten. Ding ding, time for the big match. The brawlers enter the first round, and Turner and Elwood reflect on the electric hope of the people of colour, the malevolent ease of Spencer in his seat, and how Griff seemed to soak up so easily the worship of whom he represented as if he forgot the fight was rigged. Maybe he did, the boys wondered, but they knew it was to be lost. In the first round, it didn't seem it though. Griff had no qualms about beating Big Chet without mercy, no fear of accidentally knocking him out. Round two, another round for Griff, though Big Chet was mounting a greater offensive. Hell, it would have been a good match if Spencer had some cojones and damn respect. But people are cowards, puppies. Making it look good as Turner cynically states at the grand performance of the first two rounds. T'was time for the dive. Round three. Big Shet charged upon Griff, pounding and backing him into corners, yet Griff not only stayed on his feet, but dared reversals. He wasn't going down, much to Turner and Elwood's horror. Time and time again, Big Chet landed hits that if dived upon, they would make even a performance by Tommy Wiseau look believable. Still, Griff did not go down. Did he forget? Was he too proud? Is this yet more madness for me to abide? The poet in me finds it admirable that he'd be too proud to go down, that he would risk it all for a moment of justice, just one moment. But the human in me wishes he could simply win without such consequence. And a big part of me just wanted Griff to live. The bell sounded for the last time. While the boys hoped it was rigged on points, or that they called the fix off, Spencer alone was sitting, scowling, 
while a fat cat grabbed his arm indignantly, and Griff fell into drowned-out hysterics in the middle of the ring. The ref made his announcement. The first two rounds to Griff, round three to Big Shet. Justice had prevailed, and so the innocent had to be punished. The last thing Griff could be heard screaming was, I thought it was the second round. I thought it was the second round. The poor kid was never good at math, and he had taken a hell of a beating. Who could blame him? Well, no one should have, but they did. His tears were mistaken for tears of joy, as, quote, the black boys led him back to the dormitories, cheering and whooping for their champion. Later that night, they took Griff and he never returned. His legend spun in many ways, that he was too proud to kneel or that he escaped. They were fictions better left uncorrected. Turner, Elwood, and now us, Kiotis and puppies, know the terrible truth. It's then documented that Griff was dug up 50 years later, his wrists fractured. My final quote of the story, and I hope you realize how important a read it is, is this. Most of those who know the story of the rings and the trees are dead by now. The iron is still there, rusty, deep in the heartwood, testifying to anyone who cares to listen. What I took from this was that, though the scars of humanity's cruel past can seal over and fade and be pleasantly forgotten, they shouldn't. Because like the iron, it is still there. And if we do not listen, the iron will be used again, one way or another. Needless to say, I give the match by Colson Whitehead four out of four musketeers out of four, a dark but worthy tale of the highest nobility and prowess in theme, prose, and character. Once again, link to both the text and the audio is in the show notes. Welp, that was pretty heavy, though I hope worth listening to because it felt worth saying. Now, let us have some advice from Papa Hemingway and then make a delicious word sandwich. This, like the match in Catch-22, will be in the spirit of hard-hitting contradictions that, when landed right, have an otherwise unfathomable impact. I must emphasize, though, that just because something is a contradiction does not make it inherently, irrefutably intelligent or poetic. These have to contradict themselves with nuance, irony, and even tragedy, in a way that acknowledges both aspects of itself to make a new complicated whole, rather than simply undoing itself like a dum-dum. Example! The phrase, a stupid genius, is a nonsense, but a seasick sailor is somewhat better as it's ironic and I'd like to think tragic. I'll admit it lacks nuance. Sue me. Well, don't. Y'all can deal. Anyway, tis time for Hemingway. These are from three separate letters that I have cunningly tied together. Respectively, a letter to Max Perkins, 1938, Malcolm Cowley, 1945, and Ivan Kashkin, 1935. Cue the music. We'll work again on the novel today. Writing is a hard business, Max, but nothing makes you feel better. Been working every day and going good. Makes a hell of a dull life, too but it is more fun than anything else. Do you remember how old Ford Maddox was always writing how Joseph Conrad suffered so when he wrote how it was on Meteor Dushian, a dog's trade, etc.? Do you suffer when you write? I don't at all. Suffer like a bastard when don't write, or just before, and feel empty and full quad out afterwards. I never feel as good as while writing. Writing is something that you can never do as well as it can be done. It is a perpetual challenge, and it is more difficult than anything else that I have ever done. So I do it and it makes me happy when I do it well. Unto the bread after this break. Alas, twas at this point that old Maddie arrived at the Bombardier Academy. Hopefully it's better than Nichols, but we can only wait and hope. So there I was, old Maddie the Bombardier in training, though I mainly found I was forced to do parades. We had a fanatical commanding officer, see, who was a foremost innovator in parade technique, obsessed day and night with the history, engineering, and optimization of the so-called art of the parade. 
Me and my new best friend Yo-Yo despised him. Yo-Yo was a tops fellow in my unit who also had no idea why he was there. Though he did say that he went into bombardeering because it was the longest training program available and he hoped the war would beat him to the finish. Needless to say, this little race was about the only thing the war didn't beat us in. Winning again, somehow. Yo-Yo wouldn't be like old Maddie's old best friends, the Demon Brederick, Robinson Crusoe, or Major de Coverley, not to mention the others on that island I can't bear to name, and definitely not mentioning that damn bear Jim Pawsby. No, I found that like his namesake, Yo-Yo kept coming back, so we became firm friends, and griped about the war together till the cows came home. How the cows got out of fighting, I wish I knew. As for the nonsense of the parades, this is posed often in the book Catch-22, and in the TV show adaptation, but coming from a high school environment that featured cadet parades, this time it's personal. Fun little fact about that cliche catchphrase, it comes from Jaws 4 of all things. Anyway, I like Yossarian have oft been baffled by the point of it all. I don't buy that bulaki about its modern use in enforcing discipline and routine. A far more entertaining dance number can do that. And unless the plan is to parade onto battle and thus suicide while in said close formations, like it's the ruddy civil war with a little drummer boy in the front row, I don't see how it helps anyone. And it's not about honouring the troops of old either. Moments of silence, melancholy war songs, and great poems and story do that. The difference is... Those tributes that truly remember and honour the sacrifice of the dead don't glorify war and the dissolution of individuality like a parade. And if you're saying, it's about cohesion as a team! If it's about that, then run drills. Don't make me see it. And turn the damn music down! It's 10am! I sleep in! Oh boy, I'm getting controversial for a literature as sandwiches show. I should note that I wouldn't know a thing. I bravely dodged the cadet draft, and there was a draft, and went into childcare community service. Infinitely more fun and somehow less sticky. Those poor cadets were left to roast in the sun on Anzac Day or Remembrance Day after their elaborate parade in thick, stiff and all-covering uniforms. Some would collapse, and it always seemed to me like they were being punished. Like Heller writes, they had signed up into a mad world out to get them. I'm just going to fall into this tangent. I hate parades. I find them nationalistic, oppressively conforming, time-consuming, pointless, and incredibly, so, so vainly, self-important. Not to mention they seem an awful lot like propaganda. Indeed, people who like parades to apparently honour the troops seem to be those who never went into combat. I don't mind the odd march through a town square, kind of a low-key reenactment, which is important for exploring our memories and coping as a societal conscious, but goddamn parades seem like such a hot farce. I really hate parades. Parades. As did our bread boy today, Joseph Heller, writer of Catch-22 and former World War II bombardier. Heller was a popular and respected writer whose first, that's right, first and best-known novel, Catch-22, published 1961, was considered a classic piece of literature in the second half of the 20th century, although, it should be said, not well received contemporaneously, something for which Heller was always bitter about. As you can tell by his characters, Heller was someone who held a grudge and didn't mind saying so. He was someone you knew who you stood with. Frankness is a trait to be mired, after all. However, you do wish that Heller realised how phenomenal and impactful a novel he had written despite the initial reception. But all the same, he never forgave the initial reviews. Little fun fact that I've noticed, the New Yorker magazine, my beloved New Yorker, not only didn't like the original book upon its release, but didn't like the movie when it came out in the 70s, and didn't like the new TV show all that much. So for some reason, The New Yorker and Catch-22 don't mix, except in our delicious word sandwich. That's right, we're unique. We're a niche market, but we're unique and valuable. Anyway, back to the initial reviews. 
It was derided as something apparently formless, breaking all the rules. How are those foolish, pompous critics to know that all of these flaws were in truth concealed in all-powerful virtues for one of the most impactful novels of the 20th century? Once complained as being a book that seemed to not have been written but instead having been shouted onto paper, it is a book that conceals its cunning design under so many apparent faults. It's hysteria, it's devil-may-care clumsiness, it's unembarrassed preachiness, it's repetitiveness, it's verbal excess and extravagance. All of it was done to convey the illusion of sustained noise with the quietest craftsmanship. Being a first-time novel, this is a story that is clearly a crusader for honest writing from the heart. Positioned teasingly between literature and literature's opposites, Catch-22 was always going to be an infuriating problem for the critics. It's a book that outrages as many as it delights, funny and brutal, vulgar, savage, poetic, and human. It is a memorable book by a memorable author. Speaking of... Joseph Heller was born May 1st, 1923 in Brooklyn, New York, to first-generation Russian-Jewish immigrants. His father, a bakery truck driver, died after a surgical operation when Heller was only five years old. Heller's first brush with the random and contradictory nature of life and death. After all, little Heller might have thought, ain't surgeries meant to fix people? And yet, his father went into surgery and died. Many critics believe that Heller developed a dark, wisecracking humour that marked his writing style while growing up near Coney Island, a famous amusement park in Brooklyn, which, I suspect, like Catch-22, had many dark undertones that weren't often spoke of, but once you know, all the levity up top seems like such a satirical farce. I believe he got the wisecracking at Coney Island, but the darkness was distilled there, I think, from the tragic loss of his father. Heller, meanwhile, recalled little childhood influence in the literary world except for the Iliad by Homer, an 8th century BCE poet. I have often wondered if the Simpsons patriarch was named after the legendary poet, becoming a walking Trojan horse of a fool disguised under the name of a genius, worthy of Heller himself. Perhaps there was something to my stupid genius crack from earlier. By Jove, look how this episode's formlessness is so seamlessly coherent! But jabbers you're bedazzled, I bet. Anyway, as far as literary influence, the Iliad is a solid one, methinks. After graduating from high school in 1941, Heller worked briefly in an insurance office, and in 1942 he enlisted in the Army Air Corps after America entered World War II, 1939-1945, a war in which France, Great Britain, the United States, and the Soviet Union fought against Germany, Italy, and Japan, as if you didn't already know. Two years later, he was sent to Napoleon's old watering hole, Corsica, an island in the Mediterranean Sea, where he flew 60 combat missions as a fighter pilot, earning an air medal and a presidential unit citation. Unlike Yossarian, I assume he received these awards with his clothes on. It is generally agreed that Heller's war years in the Mediterranean had only a minimal impact on the creation of Catch-22, but I like to think that though the events share no similarities, Heller's thinking and sentiments that would become the black bleeding heart of the novel were brewed and fermented during this harsh and hard time. After Heller left the military in 1945, he married Shirley Held and began his college education. Oh boy, this is exciting. That's right, he obtained a bachelor's degree in English from New York University, a master's degree from Columbia University, and attended Oxford University as a Fulbright Scholar for a year before becoming an English instructor at the Pennsylvania State University. Behold, my Kiotis, we have an author who actually studied English. I was starting to think that to be an author, one had to do journalism or law first. I really was. Two years later, Heller began working as an advertising copywriter, securing positions at such magazines as Time, Look, and McCall's from 1952 to 1961. During this time, Heller was also writing short stories and scripts for film and television, as well as working on Catch-22. After the success of Catch-22, 
Heller quit his job at McCall's and concentrated exclusively on writing fiction and plays. He wrote of hell to live the dream, I like to say, as of right now. As in, I like saying that, right now. Podcasting is fun. Catch-22 is also often fun, especially in the first half, but it is only satirical and comedic insofar as to set up a joke and punchline that those characters living it must suffer in. No characters ever find anything to laugh about in Catch-22. Not even major, 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 major. Catch-22 concerns a World War II fighter pilot named Yossarian, who believes his foolish, ambitious, mean-spirited commanding officers are more dangerous than the enemy. In order to avoid flying more missions, Yossarian retreats to a hospital with a mysterious liver complaint, wrecks his plane, and tries to get himself declared insane. Variously defined throughout the novel, Catch-22 refers to the ways in which officials in command control the people who work for them. My buddy Yo-Yo found the premise for this delicious word sandwich, his jazz. As Heller said to the New York Times, I never thought of Catch-22 as a comic novel, but I wanted the reader to be amused, and I wanted him to be ashamed that he was amused. My literary bent is more towards the morbid, gruesome, and the tragic. Great carnage is taking place, and my idea was to use humour to make ridiculous the things that are irrational and very terrible. I can think of no better way to summarise the dark, horrid magic that is this war novel. While Heller's place in 20th century books is secured with Catch-22, he is also highly regarded for his other works, which present a comic vision of modern society with serious moral connections. That's right. Holler took on the military and now he's coming for the systems out to get you cuties and puppies out there. Especially you puppies. A major theme throughout his writing is the conflict that occurs when individuals interact with such powerful institutions as corporations, the military, and the government. And make no mistake, if there is not submission, there must be conflict. I like to think that maybe, just maybe, there can also be justice. Even for just a moment. Like in The Match. Heller's second novel, Something Happened, 1974, centers on Bob Slocum, a middle-aged businessman who has a large, successful company but feels emotionally empty. Hashtag relatable. While initial reviews of Something Happened were again mixed, more recent criticism has often deemed this novel superior to and more sophisticated than Catch-22. Well, look forward to that delicious word sandwich, Marquiotes, probably released 2043. Heller then wrote Good as Gold, 1979, which marks Heller's first fictional use of his Jewish heritage and childhood experiences in Coney Island. And then, in Picture This, 1988, Heller utilizes Rembrandt's painting Aristotle Contemplating the Bust of Homer to draw parallels between ancient Greece, 17th century Holland, and contemporary America. Not bad for a kid who only read Homer growing up. It's never too late is the name of this game, methinks. In the early 1980s, Heller was stricken with a nerve disease. Glane Barr Syndrome, that left him paralysed for several months. Though the author became too weak to move and almost too weak to breathe on his own, he eventually regained his strength and recovered from the often fatal disorder. He never did like the rules or standard regulation, after all. After completing God Knows, Heller began writing his first non-fiction book, No Laughing Matter, with a guy named Speed Vogel, a friend who helped him considerably during his illness. What kind of name is Speed? It's kind of cool. Speed. Speed, butler. Don't change your name, butler. Heller died of a heart attack on December 12th, 1999, at his East Hampton, New York home. After Heller's death, Simon & Schuster published Heller's final work, A Portrait of an Artist as an Old Man, a collection of memoirs and essays by one of the world's most influential writers of the 20th century. To me, this is the story of a writer who from the first round was dealt one lousy hand after another, but with a cynical wit and a wry, sardonic grin, he kept raising the damn pot. What kind of bread could this be? 
My buddy Yo-Yo seems to think that a stale regulation brick is great to summarize the military, but I reminded him that this is his main dude, Joseph Heller. Yo-Yo seemed to think that Heller was a pretty cool cat, but needed to take his advice that awards and commendations don't mean squat in the grand scheme. Then Yo-Yo decided to pitch his grand scheme to seduce the parade craze CO's wife and set out the war in the hospital. I told him not to worry about the second part, there was no way this silly old war I.I. would go on all day. And if it does, the schmucks have taught old Maddie how to fly a plane. And it's plain to see that I shall fly this plane to sea. By Jove, I'm good. Put the gun down, Yo-Yo. I've been shot before for my puns and I will happily be shot again. Ow! Wow. Okay. Anyway, the background of Cash-22, the life and times of the defiantly formless, cynical, witty and persevering Joseph Heller is clearly extra tangy, homemade sourdough bread. An honest American bread, for it is most tart, most perseverant, and most unwieldy, like the chaos of Joseph Heller and Cash-22 itself. Now back to old Maddie's island adventure. Well, I'll be, Kiotis. Turns out old Maddie's not the only one who hates parades as much as Lieutenant Shyskoff loves them. My bestest buddy Yo-Yo despises them, and a lot of things about the military out to get him. And that's not even including the enemy. Next thing we know, we're in a plane together. Him in the bombardier bubble, and me refilling the pipe of the navigator, Arfi. What a heel he is. But more of that later. Just know that he's a real barstool. Also, yes, I spent 12 weeks learning how to fill a pipe. Them some wacky tobacco. I also did most of the navigation because Arfi is a pizza shih tzu. That's a small dog made of pizza. Hashtag playing with my non-explicit rating. Which is why our plane got in trouble many a time through the labyrinthian fabric of time and space. As I am coming to find out, Kiotis, your pal old Maddie's cosmos is not exactly linear, which explains how my former best buddy Rob was of the early 18th century while I'm in World War II. Look at all the things I'm making canon! Take that, that's not canon productions! Please don't cancel me again. Anyway, we're still in World War II, which is not a war for obedient sailors, but a war for everyone, apparently. Indeed, Yo-Yo told me it's actually called World War II, the search for more money, as Mel Brooks would put it. And furthermore, we're not just in World War II, but we're in battle. Yo-Yo had tried valiantly to get us out many times, and many times it seems like we were getting close to fulfilling our mission count. But the mission counter mysteriously kept being raised by the colonel on us every time we got close, and there was no way to get discharged due to all of them particular catches. Guess we'll just have to keep hanging out with our bestest buddies under the oppressive rule of the US government. Now, once again, we were running into a lot of flack, and for some reason our pilot was not doing barrel rolls, no matter how much I told him to press Z twice. Instead, he pressed dead twice, the fool. Suddenly I realized that much like parades, we were flying in an orderly, predictable, and close formation. And like I predicted with parades, it was damn right suicidal. We were hit, just above the drop zone. Press A to shoot, I yelled, and Yo-Yo dropped the bombs on Dresden. Dresden. You know, one of my best buddies always wanted to go to Dresden. Right before I was killed on Kilimanjaro, my friend Kurt swore he was going to make it to Dresden. I doubt he ever made it though. So it goes. We were hit again, unfortunately leaving Arfi unscathed and killing our pilot. I took the joystick, shocked to learn that the phrase flying a plane was like riding a bicycle was not literal advice. Then again, I was trying to fly with bare paws for hands. We really should address this no opposable thumb prejudice in our society, shouldn't we, Yo-Yo? He didn't hear me. Oh, how Yo-Yo wailed to get us out, while Arfi suckled on his unlit pipe. There was a fighter on our six that took a real dislike to us, and I pulled up to take him on, mono e mono, man to man. 
Life quite rightly punished me for my toxically masculine expression, because of course the German pilot was bloody Jim Pawsby, wearing a pickle helm even though it was World War II. Wrong war! You're one war too late, you foolish bear! Yo-Yo, of course, is curious about my nemesis, this curious bear flying the Messerschmitt BF-109 in a pickle helm. I told him not until he told me of his arch-enemy, Catch-22. It's time for meat, Kyotis. If you weren't already strapped in for this dogfight between man and bear, strap the flack in for some meaty story time. Huzzah! In yet another amazing battle sequence that was absolutely filmed, but being a podcast can never be shown, Jim Pawsby and I battled for a chunk of sky, tooth and nail. Why his plane was bolted with teeth is a mystery. Unless... the folk on the island. Turns out my buddy Yo-Yo never dropped his bombs, however, so I ascended like a Valkyrie, and then we dropped a massive, explosive, somehow steamy load of bombs on the unsuspecting bear from above. Now we know a bear poops in the clouds, not just the woods. Yep, poo humor. It can't all be gold, but it can all be nuggets. Moving on, returning to base, Yo-Yo told me finally of Catch-22. Catch-22 exhibits a bewildering chronology, with its beginning taking place more than halfway through the events described, and it proceeds in a series of looping flashbacks. Most of the novel takes place on the Mediterranean island of Pianosa in 1944, coincidentally where old Matty is stationed, where a Eusarian is a bombardier serving under the infuriatingly hilarious, indecisive, and ambitious Colonel Cathcart, who continually raises the number of missions the men are required to fly before their tours of duty are completed to impress his superiors. Indeed, Whereas other squadrons finish their tours of duty at around 45 missions, if that, the squadron of Colonel Cathcart fly over 60 missions. Yossarian is promoted to captain after a mission in Ferrara, Italy, in which, after missing a bridge, he flies back a second time and successfully destroys it. However, during this process, a squadron member is killed. Yo-Yo is very fascinated by this Yossarian fella, might I say. Yossarian shares a tent with Orr, who crashes his plane on every mission but always survives, and with the belongings of Mud who was killed in action two hours after his arrival on base, but before being officially checked in, constantly referred to as the dead man in his tent, as if they just left the literal rotting corpse there, staying on attention. And with the madness that this book portrays, that is a very real possibility. The mess officer, Milo Minderbinder, gradually turns his duties as mess officer for the island into an international black market syndicate, through which he becomes mayor of several towns, becomes knighted, buys tomatoes for 7 cents and sells them at 5 cents for a profit, and eventually enlists the enemy Germans, at one point even having German planes bearing the logo of his syndicate, bomb his own base, resulting in Mud's death, and of course, a profit. Other characters include the self-righteous and untitled flight surgeon Dr. Nika, who, when treating the traumatized and wounded soldiers, often asks, what about me? The gentle-hearted and oft-abused chaplain, the hopelessly lonely major, 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 the mysterious and terrifying Major Blank de Coverley, and poor mad Hungry Joe, who suffers screaming nightmares except when he has missions to fly. The central event of the story is a raid on Avignon, France. During the mission, the incompetent co-pilot Dobbs seizes controls from Hupel, the 15-year-old pilot, and the radio gunner Snowden. Snowden is killed in a grisly death that has a profound effect on Yossarian. Covered in blood, he sheds his uniform and simply decides he doesn't want to wear it anymore, he appears naked at the next formation, when receiving his Medal of Valor, and at Snowden's funeral, 
Indeed, at Snowden's funeral, the poor chaplain sees Yesaria naked in the tree from afar, and believes it a vision, an angel watching Snowden's funeral, or a devil. The reality of life on Pianosa and the war is so absurd that the chaplain can only see what's happening around him as some sort of absurd celestial vision. From that point on, Yossarian is acutely aware of his own mortality, and he strives to avoid death at all costs. This chronic survivalism is seen by many as him being crazy, a mental disease. In attempts to cancel a dangerous raid on Bologna, Italy, Yossarian convinces Colonel Korn that the enemy has a weapon that can glue a formation of planes together in mid-flight, which is quite a cartoonish image if you ask Olmetti. He then poisons his unit with soap to delay the raid, he moves the bombing line forward on the map to indicate there need not be any bombing of Bologna, and finally, Yossarian clashes time and time again with that pesky, inevitable Catch-22. Although the mission is eventually approved, Yossarian, flying with pilot Kid Sampson and co-pilot Nately, pretends that the intercom is broken in order to force them back to base early. Well, pretends in that he rips all of the wires of his intercom out. So not exactly lying, just told the truth a little early. At this point, old Maddie had to ask, what was this blasted Catch-22? Yo-Yo retold Yossarian's experience of it word for word. There was only one catch, and that was Catch-22, which specified that a concern for one's own safety in the face of dangers that were real and immediate was the process of a rational mind. All was crazy and could be grounded. All he had to do was ask, and as soon as he did, he would no longer be crazy and would have to fly more missions. All would be crazy to fly more missions and sane if he didn't, but if he was sane, he would have to fly them. If he flew them, he was crazy and didn't have to but if he didn't want to, he was sane and had to. Yossarian was moved very deeply by the absolute simplicity of this clause of Catch-22, and let out a respectful whistle. That's some catch, that Catch-22, he observed. It's the best there is, Dr. Nika agreed. The rest of the squadron returns from Bologna unharmed somehow after this first flight where Yossarian forced his plane alone to turn around. This isn't really explained, for on this day the flight is a cakewalk, literally no resistance, and then the next is hell. Why they didn't complete the mission in the clear skies was at first perplexing to me, but I believe when Yossarian turned back, the superiors told them all to turn back, and took a long way home to lull Yossarian into flying the next day naively unto hell. On the following raid, Yossarian's plane is hit, largely due to the stubborn, belligerent, and overall shitsu-eating incompetence of the navigator, Arfi, but it lands safely. Arfi in this sequence, and many sequences after, is a truly blood-boiling obstacle, constantly barring Yossarian's way through the plane, pretending not to hear anything, even when Yossarian is shot later, Arfi refuses to acknowledge that, one, Yossarian is bleeding in front of him, and any word Yossarian screams in his face. And generally, Arfi doesn't do his job. He's lost throughout the plane, he gets the plane lost into more combat, and he gets lost in Rome. Indeed, he's described as a navigator that, after he left college, could not find himself. Speaking of old Maddie's old school days, this heel reminded me a lot of the idiotic banter that passed as locker room humour back then. The more people got riled, the funnier it was supposed to be. How's that for some powerful contradictory nonsense? Don't you worry, Kiotis. Your pal old Maddie was a proud outcast. And of course, we all grow. Just make sure you choose to grow your way, and not how folk tell you to. Later, Yossarian cunningly fakes an illness in order to take refuge in the hospital, a tactic he uses frequently to avoid combat. 
He does this by complaining about his liver when a friendly doctor informs him that doctors know squat about the liver and will take his word for it, which complements his pale and somewhat sickly complexion. Tis here that we meet the friendly Texan who no one could stand, the man in white, a man totally encased in white cast that becomes a strange Schrodinger's cat, and a grieving family come to say goodbye to their son, whose body was never recovered, and so they say goodbye to Yossarian wrapped in bandages, none the wiser. The back and forth between hospital and combat is both humorous and in keeping with the tragical cyclical nature of the novel, as usually he is running to one while fleeing desperately from the other in equal haste every time. During a mission to Leghorn, Italy, Yossarian suffers a real proper leg wound that results in him being hospitalized again. When he is hit, like in the show, he fears his nuts have been blown off. But unlike Hemingway's hero from The Sun Also Rises, Yossarian gets to keep his balls and becomes hell-bent on brave, courageous cowardice, intent to get out of the war at all costs. While in the hospital, he and Airman Dunbar take on the identities of other patients. What they do is when there's not enough beds for them and they outrank a person who was in the bed, they go up to them, they throw their thumb over their shoulder and they say, screw. And the subordinate patients scutter off to who knows where. After an incident in which he puts his hand up a nurse's skirt, Zarian is quite rightly sent to the hospital psychiatrist, who concludes that he is crazy and should go home. This psychiatrist is amusing, however, because the psychiatrist is ecstatic to learn that Yossarian understands his problems and spends most of the sessions hoping to offload his own mental issues to Yossarian. However, because the psychiatrist thought he was examining the soldier whose bed Yossarian was sleeping in, it is this soldier who gets sent home instead, and Yossarian gets sent back into combat. It's a mad, mad world, bureaucracy and war. It is in this later part of the book that blood really flies into the propeller. After returning to his tent, Yossarian declines Orr's request to fly with him, and on his next mission, Orr crashes into the Mediterranean Sea and does not return. Cathcart then orders an attack on an undefended village in order to produce pleasing photographs for General Peckham. That's right, they've been doing these air raids ultimately for pleasing photography. Dunbar, however, dumps his bombs a safe distance from the village. On a subsequent training run, Yossarian threatens to strangle the pilot McQuat for performing dangerous aerial stunts. Sorry, Yo-Yo, I should probably stop telling our pilot to do barrel rolls all the time. Later, McQuat playfully buzzes the beach in his plane, as he often did, pulling up at the last second, but this time, he accidentally slices Kid Samson in half. He then deliberately crashes his own plane into a mountain, which, look, I get. That was a traumatizing bit, I'll be honest, Kiotis. I love this book, but it is not for everyone. Told you blood hit the propeller. Because Dr. Nika was falsely listed on McQuat's manifest, it is assumed that he also died, and he is therefore unable to convince anyone, including his wife, that he remains alive. A real shame, because he has always complained how he deserved to go back to private enterprise where he could overcharge people. After four young recruits are assigned to Yossarian's tent, Yossarian escapes to Rome with Hungry Joe. While there, Yossarian helps Nately rescue a prostitute being held by some senior officers, only ever referred to as Nately's whore, which is regrettable. Nately is in love with the woman, and after this rescue, she now returns his affection. Before this event, she would say that if he truly loved her, he would sleep with another prostitute and give her the night off. Later, Nurse Duckett tells Yossarian that she overheard a plan to disappear Dunbar. After that, Yossarian cannot find Dunbar. The number of required missions is raised to 80, and both Dobbs and Nately are killed in combat. Yossarian begins walking backward and refuses to fly more missions. He is sent to Rome to rest. When he tells the prostitute about Nately's death, she blames Yossarian and makes repeated attempts to kill him, first off the bat being a lunge with a potato peeler, and she tries to peel him good even after he returns to Pianosa. 
However, when he learns that military police have emptied the brothel, he travels to Rome without permission. He is unable to find either the prostitute or her younger sister, and Rome has become shockingly barbarous. He goes to the officer's apartment, where he finds that Arfie has raped and killed a maid. When the military police arrive, they leave Arfie alone and arrest Yossarian for being in Rome without a pass. Gotta enforce order, forget the bad guys. Bah, many humbugs indeed. Facing possible court-martial, Yossarian is offered a deal by Korn and Cathcart. They will promote him to major and send him home if he pretends to be friends with the two officers and show support for their policies. Yossarian would be a real feather in their cap. Yossarian agrees, but as he is leaving, Nately's prostitute, disguised as a private, stabs him. In the hospital, a mysterious man tells Yossarian, We've got your pal. Yossarian reflects that his only remaining friend is Hungry Joe, but the chaplain tells him that he too has died. Yossarian decides to renege on the deal. The chaplain returns to tell him that Orr has been found living in Sweden, and Yossarian decides to go there. As he leaves the hospital, Yossarian evades yet another murder attempt from Nately's lady. Chaos to the very end. As I am sure is already as clear as an overlicked crispy chip, this story really is made by the crisscrossing nature of the characters that hold the mayhem together. Plot-wise, it's actually all out of order, both literally and figuratively. Both to capture the tangled, mad, incomprehensive and fragmented state of Yossarian's mind during his time in war, as well as immersing the reader with a familiarity with events that haven't happened yet, so that, like Hella, it is like they're remembering a nigh nonsensical time from the past that is at once at the surface yet buried in their minds. The story constantly refers to events that haven't happened in detail yet, so that when they do unfold, it's a time you already feel like you remember. But these characters, oh, these characters... It's their lives that create the delirious, humorous, and ridiculous setup, and their tragic deaths and misfortunes that deal the crushing punchline. So as for meat, I can think of nothing better than the tragic deliciousness and the brutal tenderness of veal cutlets, pan-fried in butter with a quick roux sauce made by whisking a bit of flour, white wine, and lemon juice into the remaining butter and juices. And if you don't like veal, that's okay. We got some baby cows instead. On to cheese, Kyotis. Meanwhile, your pal old Maddie's been called into Colonel Cathcart's office. Only good news, I'm sure. Then again, Colonel Cathcart's so good at delivering bad news. Oh dear. There I was, standing toe-to-toe with Colonel Cathcart. I asked what this is all about, officer. He informed me that he was not a cop and needed to lay down the law. It was very odd. He was yelling at me, which is fair enough, I was but a private, but then he wanted me to tell him he was doing a good job at yelling at me. I told him he was doing swell, for which he threw a hard plum tomato at my face as both punishment and reward. Apparently, my black eye was a real feather in his cap, and my destroying Jim Porsby's plane, though the bear saddled and rode a bomb down to the ground, somehow, I bet, to safety, was a real black eye to him because the bombs landed on a tomato crop and the bear went to take Paris. I bloody knew it. Damn you, Jim Porsby. I was a bit unclear on where I stood, but then he told me about my pal Yo-Yo. He said that Yo-Yo was on his 49th mission of 50. One more and he could go home and the colonel couldn't wait to be rid of him. Apparently Cathcart didn't like Yo-Yo all too much, which I thought was ridiculous, and told him that my best buddy was the best bombardier in the squad and we'd all be wearing real black eyes to lose him. After all, I said, Yo-Yo's a pilot you can always count on coming back. I laughed. He didn't. 
He thought it was a damn fine strategy to keep the best bombing unit in the military and become a general, and so raised the mission count to 60 in order to keep Yo-Yo on a bit longer. Hooray! I get to stay with my buddy. I realized what I had done as I left the colonel's tent with my arms filled with tomatoes. I had started Cathcart's obsessive cycle of mission raising. We were never going to go home until the war ended or we did. And that means I get to keep having good times with my best friend Yo-Yo. I went to tell Yo-Yo the good news. I knew it would be a real feather in my cap for our friendship. He told me where I could stick the feather instead. Aww. Cheese characters. Come on, Kyotis, we got a rhythm. There are so many damn characters in Catch-22. Like anything that's ridiculous, there's a whole separate Wikipedia page just to list the characters, not even minding explaining them. And seeing that pretty much every character has a dedicated chapter to elaborating on their zany complications and broken psyches, all while being major supporting characters in Yossarian's adventures, turning these loonies into cheese is truly an act of madness, and not just because turning characters into cheese is already a little odd. So, Kyotis, to keep Yo-Yo happy, we're going to focus on Yossarian. Before we do, I got a touch on the lead manifestation of his woe, Colonel Cathcart himself, whose personal chapter had me rolling in stitches, easily one of my favourite chapters, as he argues with himself about feathers in his cap and real black eyes. What more he can do other than constantly raising the mission count to become a general, which will never happen, how he hates the generals and subordinates he is dependent upon, and how Yossarian in three separate incidents must be three separate people and thus found himself haunted by an army of Yossarians, ironically, out to get him. One of my favourite things about this is when he addresses this Yossarian epidemic that's swarming him, he is very proud of the action he takes. He writes down Yossarian in his book, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, question mark, exclamation mark. Then he sits back in his chair, satisfied with all the work he's done. Moving on from Cathcart, I got a brush by Milo Minderbender, pretty much capitalism incarnate. He starts off so likeable, a swell guy, at once brilliant and insane, profiteering from the nonsense of war and giving his squadron brilliant food. Might as well, right? But just like late-stage capitalism, his syndicate spirals out of control, bombing his own squadron, killing his own men, and thus employees, because everyone has a share. He is the capitalist machine, which clearly both works so well with the war machine while at the same time transcending all of war's political ideals and limitations. No one is safe. To be frank, Milo Minderbender and thus capitalism has no morals. The tragic thing about Milo, and I guess capitalism itself, is that you like Milo. Milo is a very likeable fella, which is what makes him so dangerous. Especially because he doesn't see how his capitalism and how his business, his syndicate, in which everyone's got a share, is to everyone's ultimate detriment. Moving on! Also let us wink at poor Major 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 Major. The poor guy was raised as Caleb till he was ten, and then his father told him the all-too-binding practical joke that was his name. Apparently, when he was born, his mother, so exhausted from childbirth, left it to his father to sign Caleb as they agreed beforehand. The practical joker, Mr. Major, instead named his only son Major. And thus we have Major, Major, Major. Later promoted, due to a computer error, to Major, 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 Major. In the squadron, he was promoted to Major and isolated from the few friends he had ever made. If you've seen the show, you know of his famous policy that no one can see him in his office until he is out of the office. But you might not know of when he returned to try and play basketball with the lads again. In the show, as in the book, he was promoted while on the court, immediately isolated from his friend who would no longer play with him, afraid to touch an officer. He returned to the court in a thin disguise later, and they played so rough with him that it turned into a flat-out beating. 
Even though it was clear his cover was blown, the poor guy so wanted to be part of a group again, so crippled by loneliness, that he accepted the beating because he was at least part of something. People looked at him. He wasn't shunned, even though he was beaten to a pulp. Like the whole book, what starts off as an absurd, humorous satire becomes a very real reflection of war, society, and us. Finally, there's Arfie. I'll say only this. He is a navigator who gets lost wherever he goes, seems permanently attached to his ubiquitous stupid pipe, likes to pretend not to hear orders during air raids, and proudly will never pay for sex, but will just as proudly rape and murder a maid. He's lucky where a non-explicit channel kiot is. If you've seen the show, you're probably surprised that George Clooney's lieutenant, then colonel, and then finally General Scheisskopf didn't make the cut of this cheese. Well, in the show, Clooney did wonders with this character, and frankly handled a nigh-unfilmable book extremely faithfully with a hell of a lot of graceful skill. But Scheisskopf, while a ridiculous higher-up for Yossarian to hate from day one, like how a stupid Jim Pawsby seems to be a constant demon for old Maddie, throughout the bulk of the book he really isn't an issue like Cathcart and his cronies, or an issue like Yossarian's friends. Special mention goes to several other characters that appear throughout the book. One of them is one of my most favourite characters ever written, the old man in Rome, who has a great philosophical argument about the true winners and losers in morality, patriotism, and war. And other exceptionally colourful characters that didn't cut the cheese for Clooney's adaptation include Chief White Harfloat, a Native American who does a great monologue about his family being, at first, forced to move every time oil was discovered on their land, then actively stalked by capitalists and the government for where they'd settled next, which is where oil would then be discovered. Luciana, a woman Eusarian briefly dates in Rome in, frankly, a lovely romantic sequence of a swirl of lust and love that happens so hastily but earnestly, who will not marry Eusarian because he would be crazy if he wanted to marry her. That kind of contrarian tragedy once again. And then finally we have Hungry Joe, a haunted, bawdy and perverted pilot who has nightmares whenever he finishes his mission count and takes pictures of naked women only to never develop the photos. And then there is Giuseppe, the soldier who sees everything twice which I should hope doesn't need much explanation. In the book, he literally just yells out while in the hospital, I see everything twice. The doctors rush after him. Yossarian, seeing an easy trip to the hospital, quickly yells, I see everything twice. And he gets swarmed and carried off to the hospital to be foe examined. Moving on to our boy Yossarian himself. Here's Yossarian, as brief as I can make him, for he's almost as long-winded as my buddy Yo-Yo. John Yossarian, the protagonist of Catch-22, is both a member of the squadron's community and alienated by it. In a big way, he never subscribes to us and them mentality, in that he alone is us, and everyone is them out to get him. Although he flies and lives with the men, he is marked as an outsider by the fact that many of the men think he is insane. Some like him, sure, but they think he's crazy. Even his Assyrian name is unusual. No one has ever heard it before. Too many S's, they say. His difference from the rest of the men leads us to expect something exceptional from Yossarian. But Yossarian's characteristics are not those of a typical hero. Indeed, he is the perfect protagonist to spearhead a new kind of war novel for the time. He is a quintessential anti-hero. A fanatic ambassador for the counterculture movement to deliver the true, uncensored word on war. The time of John Wayne and the Green Berets touting the glories of war was over. It was the time for Kurt Vonnegut. It was the time for Joseph Hellers. It was the time for the Vietnam War protesters. It was the time to call war out on its bullshnip. Unlike war heroes, he does not risk his life to save his compatriots. In fact, his primary goal throughout the novel is to avoid risking his life whenever possible for whenever reason. He is really only active in the book when trying to save his own skin, which is why it's such a weird story to read. 
There are great chapters about other characters, but they seem so far off the beaten track that you read and read and aren't quite sure where you are in the story, because you've attached a Yusarian story, but sometimes he's just hiding in the hospital. The system of values around Yusarian is so skewed that the survivalist approach seems to be the only true moral stance he can take, if only because it is so logical. Indeed, as a reader, you completely forget any ideas of the glories of war or fighting for country or the glory of sacrificing yourself for that country. You're totally on Yossarian's side. You just want Yossarian to live. And frankly, the best part of Yossarian is his humanity. He doesn't just want to live himself. He wants everyone just to stop fighting, stop trying to kill him, stop trying to kill each other. And if everyone can just live in their beautiful insanity, their way. What we come to hate about military bureaucracy as we read Catch-22s is its complete thick-headed lack of logic. Men are asked to risk their lives again and again for reasons that are utterly illogical and unimportant, often just for arbitrary feathers in the cap of generals that don't remember receiving or giving them in the first place. In this illogical world, Yossarian seizes hold of one true logical idea, that he should try to preserve life. He likes living, the schmuck. Unlike a conventional hero, however, especially in a war story, Yossarian does not generalize this idea to mean that he should risk his own life in attempts to save everybody else's. In a world where life itself is so undervalued and so casually lost, it is not only possible to redefine heroism as simple self-preservation, but a must to get on the side of Yossarian. There are times when he simply enjoys himself, like when romancing the lovely and lively Lucina, but he simply is not immune to the paradoxical foil of Catch-22. She will not marry him because he must be crazy to want to marry her, and he rips up her phone number because he was so impressed that she slept with him for free. What a schmack. But a schmuck you just gotta root for. He's just a guy that sees through the nonsense and realizes he has no place fighting a war that really doesn't need him to die for it. The insistence on self-preservation creates a conflict for Yossarian. Indeed, he clashes with pretty much every character in the story, from his best friend in the tent or to one of his other best friends, Pleminger, a die-hard red, white, and blue American to the bone who believes in dying for one's country. Even though he is determined to save his own life at all costs, he nonetheless cares deeply for the other members of his squadron and is traumatized by their deaths. And boy, do they die. Other than Orr, a pilot who mastered the crash so he could crash land into a life of freedom and comfort in Sweden, all of his friends in his squadron are killed in the most nonsensical, unfair, and unjust ways. And the barstool Arfi, of course, lives. Only the good die young kiotis and puppies. Hungry Joe, for example, always feared that Hupel's roaming cat would suffocate him in his sleep when the feline would park itself on his face when he slept. Guess how Hungry Joe dies. Yossarian's ongoing horror at Snowden's death stems from his pity for Snowden and from his horrified realization that his own body is just as destructible as Snowden's, that when Snowden whispers softly, I'm cold, and the blood flows and the lights go out, he realizes how fragile life is, that humans for all our planes, guns, hopes and dreams are literally just garbage waiting to rot away. Ultimately, Yossarian realizes, all we have to live for is each other. People are trash, as is That's Not Canon's motto, and now we've got literature backing up that universal truth. A positive side of being garbage, my is though. If you see a screwed up piece of paper on the pavement by itself, well, you throw it out. Where do you throw it? Into the bin, which gets taken to the dump, where we, as garbage, of all kinds and colors and shapes and sizes and wonder, reside together in a glorious pile that we call our own, the garbage dump. What I'm saying is, Kyotis, whether we're people, garbage, beautiful souls, or complete immoral trash, all we have to live for is each other.
In the end, when offered a choice between his own safety and the safety of the entire squadron, Yossarian is unable to choose himself over others. This concern for others complicates the simple logic of self-preservation and creates its own Cash-22. Life is not worth living without a moral concern for the well-being of others, but a moral concern for the well-being of others endangers one's life. Yossarian ultimately escapes this conundrum by literally walking away from the war, an action that refuses both the possibility of becoming an officer who avoids danger at the expense of his troops, and that of remaining a soldier who risks his life for meaningless reasons. No, he walks away. He flies off to join Orr in Sweden. That's right, Kyoptis. Yossarian lives, y'all, warm and safe under a blanket of Swiss cheese. But what kind of cheese is Yossarian himself? That's right, Kyoptis. We have two layers of cheese on this delicious word sandwich. Why, Yossarian himself has to be punchy, self-preserving, yet fun and rich and creamy, but spicy, complexing, and perplexing. Yossarian is absolutely and clearly, probably, spicy pimento cheese. So that's Swiss cheese and spicy pimento cheese, my Kyoptis. Ain't that great, Yo-Yo? Yossarian lives. Yo-Yo, why are you crying? Yo-Yo, is that a potato peeler? You should. Get back. Get back, my friend. Back? As I ran for my life from my best friend, Yo-Yo, who kept yelling he was going to live with joy while furiously spitting he was going to kill me, I couldn't help wonder, what's this all about? What's the source of all this grief and joy? What's the damn sauce on a delicious word sandwich? Well, a summary, for really we've covered most of this ground already, and I'm being torn to chippies by this potato peeler-wielding friend of mine. A lot of the humour and frustration comes from the absolute power of bureaucracy, and how it entangles us all so hopelessly into its madness. This leads to a perpetual loss of religious faith, which eventually culminates in the realisation that we create our own moral code, one where deserting the army is better than betraying your squadron. Yo, yo, stop! We can desert. Like Yossarity in the book. Where? To Sweden, yo-yo. Where his buddy Orr was. That's right. Oh, you know Orr? That's nifty. We could even catch them, yo-yo. Yo-yo? Yo-yo, that plane only has one seat, you goose. You... Oh, well, so much for not betraying your squad, bub. He's flown off, Kyoptis. Whatever is old Matty to do? And now I've been seen loudly attempting to desert, and Colonel Cathcart and his cronies are closing in on old Maddie. Old Maddie is in a whole lot of trouble. At least I have. Nope, he took the potato peeler. Blast. Meanwhile, Hella spits in the face of this literature podcast by highlighting through this book the impotence of language in the face of the realities of death. Yossarian is only able to say, there, there, as Snowden bleeds out and how the words that constrain us so much in the day-to-day hold no real power when it comes down to the brass tacks. And there's the inevitability of death, something my latest foe, Yo-Yo, should have stuck around to hear about. Snowden's death in the hands of Yossarian revealed the ultimate secret that people are trash, as That's Not Canon so proudly states as a clear literary reference to this book and this particular episode. That's right, That's Not Canon's People Are Trash motto is Canon, a reference to Delicious Word Sandwich. How's that for canon, ladies and gentlemen? Also, this realization that death is inevitable and that we are garbage makes it abundantly clear that the only thing for it is to seize life as something precious and absolutely fleeting, where we should endeavor as desperately as Yossarian to enjoy every minute of it. Although Yo-Yo would apparently enjoy it without old Maddie, it seems. Quite hurtful. Gonna need to drown my sorrows in sauce and then get sourced. Death absolute bureaucracy and futile words in the vein of satire? 
Well, that's a cold and pungent, biting and dare I say disruptive set of themes. That has to be the contrarian staple of beef pairing sauce. Horse radish sauce. With a touch of sour cream to contrast the contrast. Gas 22, folks. While the squadron drags me into the colonel's tent, which wouldn't have happened if I had a damn potato peeler, I guess this is where I babble out some final thoughts on our sandwich to dish out some salad, seasoning, and vegetables. This is a book that takes time to digest. It takes time to chew and get through. It's a strong book, with unapologetic opinions. So give it some iron, whop a nice load of spinach on there, drop some mushrooms for the bomb clouds, and sprinkle a healthy dose of black pepper. This is a fun book, with a hell of a lot of punch. But for better or worse, it's not for everyone. And don't kick yourself if you don't like it. It is also very stoppy. As I mentioned, you often go off the beaten track, and its non-cyclical nature makes you feel like you're not really making any progress at all. So sometimes, it can feel like a slog. But it's a fun slog, which I can think of as no higher or more reflective praise for Joseph Heller's masterpiece. And with that, Kiotis, it turns out that I've been banished by Colonel Cathcart because I scared off our best bombardier that he hated most of all. Second to me now, apparently. I've been given a plane and told never to return, dishonorably discharged and given the ultimate military black eye, and a literal one, which I think is against the rules, and which I think Hella would agree is a real feather in my cap. Who knows where I'll land as I take off and take to the skies? Until next time, Kiotis, happy flying, happy living, and happy dying. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.